Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Frontside Podcast, episode 33. Still, no theme music. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry about that. Uh, I'm, I've, I've committed to doing it by next week. So, so next time that you guys hear, we, we are going to get some theme music. I think I've promised that before, but I'm really promising it now. Are you going to do ukulele music? Is that the plan? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I haven't exactly uh, worked out which song, although I've got some ideas. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll throw a few things on splice, kick it around, see how it rolls. Um, so yeah, this is episode 33. I've got, uh, some pretty, we, this is a, this is going to be a nerdy podcast. Um, I'm going to forewarn everybody. Uh, but that's good. Cause we got some pretty, pretty big nerds here. Um, <laughs> I'm Charles. I work here at the front side. I'm a software developer and with me are Lydia and Alex. You guys want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, yes, I am Lydia. I am also a developer here at the front side. Um, and I've been here for about three months now. Woo! Wow. Um, Alex, I'm a developer at the front side as well, and I've been working here nine months, and it's my first podcast. I'm the last front side developer to get on the podcast, so <laughs> we needed to I'm save a, a super nerdy one for you. Uh, yeah, thank you guys. That's so sweet. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to be talking about. Uh, today, are you ready for drum roll? Brrr. Immutability. I know you're, you're thinking like, God, what an exciting, exciting, exciting podcast topic. This is actually going to be easy for our podcast editor because the rest of the podcast is just us going like, uh, <laughs> thereby demonstrating immutability, QED, we're done, right? Cut. <laughs> Cut. Okay. Good episode, guys. No, ser- <laughs> seriously, it's like um, we we've been um, we've been kind of experimenting and starting to lean on a more immutable style here um, at the at the front side, and it's 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 something that I think that it's becoming ingrained enough in the way that we develop software uh, and the way that we develop our UIs that I think it I th- I think it's worth talking about, um, and I think it. It bears some discussion. And so, you know, it's not, I think a lot of people think of it as like a, a kind of a highfalutin uh, concept, like, oh, there's your functional strictly immutable. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't think, you know, I think that um, in our experience, it's been something that uh, has, has kind of yielded real dividends. Uh, and so we mm-hmm. wanted to kind of talk about it. And yeah. um, Charles, I you think, know, I you've, think been, you've been coming in with an immutability example like for the last six months on like a weekly basis. Like, look how cool and easy this is. Yeah, yeah, you can apply it. Once you kind of get started with it, you can realize you can apply it to like so many different things. Um, I think, you know, that's certainly been our experience. And I, I kind of wanted to, to, to ground the discussion in, uh, you know, a project that we all worked on. Um, you know, everybody here at the front side, also the, the three people here, um, and that's impagination and ember impagination, uh, and just kind of relate the experience that we have and the kind of the, the rewards that we were able to reap, um, by doing this in an immutable style. So anyway. Hey Charles, what is immutability? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lydia, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, there's nothing really, there's nothing really like, um, 
there's nothing to it and then there's everything to it. But the 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 core concept behind immutability is that you just don't change anything about the objects in your system. And, and because we're talking about UIs, you don't change the models. So you have in MVC, you have your models and your views. And the idea is your models don't change. And the properties on those models don't change. And so you might be thinking like, well, if the model changes, how can the UI actually change? And the answer is that, well, the model actually can change, but you, you, it, you're always adding, you're, you're swapping out the, the model in its entirety rather than replacing a property here or a property there. So, and you get a lot of, lot of, lot of dividends. And the um, next from, model just inherits all the properties from the previous one, right? Right, right, right. So we did, like, I kind of want to turn the, because, you know, you guys actually did most of the implementation of this stuff. Like, um, you know, I kind of wanted to turn the, the, the discussion over to you and see, like, kind of coming from it, uh, what, what you guys' take on it was, like, kind of approaching this new technique. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's, let's start by talking about what, what impagination is. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that'll make a little bit more sense as to why it's an immutable model and why we did that. So, okay. yep. So, impagination takes your paginated data set on your server and returns just a single array for all of those data points, right? So, instead of having to query your server for page after page whenever you're ready to receive it, it does all of that work for you you just tell it how to get a page and not when. And it returns a array for you to play with. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And we had done, we'd actually, we, so, you know, as a, kind of a, a preview or kind of a, a prequel, we had done the precursor to impagination as a mutable model. Um, in other words, you had essentially this, what amounted to an Ember array, uh, or an extension of an Ember array on the client. And then as you would fetch more pages from the server, we'd append those on to the end of the data set. And so you'd have this kind of data set that would just grow and grow and grow and grow and grow as you did your infinite scroll, in this case, is the, the, the use case that we were using it for. And that had, it was, while it was definitely doable and we got something working and we got it into production, um, there were a lot of problems uh, with it where, you know, because we were actually changing the array each time, it was very difficult to tell, you know, one, we were, because we were pending to the end, we had to have a complex queuing system for the promises because, you know, you could be having five pages in flight and they would all return at different times and you have to make sure that there's an inherent sequencing and so there was the the tracking that, but even more so was it was very difficult to tell because the the state of the expand this expanding array it only had itself to refer to. It was difficult to tell where you were coming from and where you were going. So if you wanted to say drop in and start reading from the very middle of this data set, well, you couldn't really do that. Uh, or if you wanted to back up you know, start from the end and read backwards or, you know, start from the middle and read forwards. You just couldn't really do that. You always had to start from the middle beginning and then it just had to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. Um, and so you had this kind of unwieldy data structure that was hard. It was hard to make it reactive. 
And I think a good example of that is infinite scroll, right? That is like the paginated data example that continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. Um, but you always have to start out at the beginning when you refresh your page. Right, right. And I think there was also several concerns, like from a UI perspective, we kind of wanted to give the user some immediate feedback on on what was happening with the data that was being requested. Like we might want to show a mm-hmm. spinner when a page was in flight but hadn't been loaded yet. Or, um, you know, we wanted to show a scroll bar that was, you know, appropriately uh, proportioned based on like the entire data set, even though what we were actually returning to the front end was some little slice of that. Um, and so right. a lot of those things ended up getting kind of baked into the way that we were using immutability for for this specific purpose. Right. And so we kind of, you know, the, the, the high-level thing, we were like, okay, well, what if we could just imagine this, this array as always having all of the properties that it always will ever have? Um, like it's got a length of 1,000, even though we're only showing 10. And uh, it's got, you know, 10 pages and it's got a page size of 10 and here's the re- like what would happen is if instead of if I just asked for the record at index 999 if it returned not a proxy to a record that was null but an actual record that just had as part of its state like I haven't been requested yet and and so there you know there's no there was no proxying it was it was like you had a real functioning complete data set at any given point it was just the state of the individual records were indicating whether they were fetched or in flight or uh etc etc and so forth so why Um, was this a good fit for ember charles well i mean so i guess there's uh i think it's a good fit it was a good fit for ember um because so I think it both is a good fit for Ember and it isn't a good fit for Ember. And when I say isn't, I don't mean not. It's just not not. That that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so let me just – let's just erase. Let's like rewind <laughs> the tape, so to speak, and just uh, uh, erase those those like last three sentences there. Um, I think there are things about it that are universal. Um, so – Loading a data set and treating it as a complete, hydrated, filled data set, the way that you access it is the same whether you've got one record loaded or whether you've got the all the records loaded. Um, I think that is a powerful concept that transcends Ember. Uh, but I do, but because Ember now has things like, especially in this case, Glimmer, it enables that style because you can just replace the entire data set, the entire array. So when a page gets resolved, rather than having a proxy record that just kind of magically gets populated at the end and you're kind of observing the content of that proxy, you just thunk in a completely new version of the entire array. And because of the way the Glimmer works, it'll just figure out, oh, these things have changed, these things have not changed, and so I need to either update the DOM accordingly or not. And so... You know, a lot of times, so with the way that impagination works, you know, you could be updating the data set for pages that are completely off the screen. In fact, if you're loading your data uh, appropriately, that's how it's going to work. And so, you know, Ember never does a single DOM update because 
you know, these these records that are resolving, you're replacing the entire array, but the the records that might affect what's on the screen are way, 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 way down the array. And so the DOM never sees the change. But but it'll so that's, be ready. That's, right? It'll be ready, right? So so as you they so so then as they scroll, the records will actually be there and you know, you pull it. But from a from a conceptual perspective, it's very simple because you're replacing the entire array rather than, you know, just 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 you know, shimming in some some content on a proxy. I could see a very similar thing working in future versions of Ember Data. As in Ember Data will only change whatever is necessary, like on these computed properties. Are you saying that immutability would substitute computed properties? No, I'm saying, for, like when I say that, I'm saying that you know the that the data store itself would become immutable, and so you would basically be replacing the records entirely. Uh, the re- the records that your model saw, you'd be replacing entirely. Same same concept, right? So I think uh, maybe we we're obviously super familiar with this thing that we all worked on to build, but I bet our listeners are right. <laughs> a little bit confused about uh, kind of the different pieces that we're talking about here. Um, I think it's probably important to explain that uh, what we what we finally ended up with after we uh, kind of picked this problem apart is we ended up with just a raw JavaScript library um, that can be mm-hmm. used in an implementation. Like anyone could create a wrapper for any sort of framework they might want to off of this because it's just it's just straight JavaScript. Um, and then we also created an Ember add-on that does kind of the wrapper piece for Ember specifically and actually we had a lot of fun figuring out how to use components as really just kind of a, a a data only. Like there's no there's no UI actually associated with the component that we've created. It's just a wrapper that yields some properties. Um, and I think that was kind of an interesting experience for me. That wasn't that that wasn't how I had previously been thinking about components or using them. Um, right. And I think that. Charles had kind of conceived of this as in two pieces from the beginning. And I think it might be interesting to hear a little bit more about how you arrived at this idea of like, okay, we're going to create one library that can be used by anyone that uses JavaScript and then one library or, and then an add-on that's specific to kind of our implementation that other people might also want to use in an open source capacity. Right. So, I mean, I can tell you, so a lot of it had to do with experience, uh, experimenting with Ohm and Omniscient. Um, which are two uh, two UI libraries that uh, are using React. Uh, so Ohm is written in ClojureScript, um, and Omniscient is just plain old JavaScript. But a lot of they they actually contain a lot of the same ideas. And the big idea I think that the that I took away from working with them was that you can even if you've got small error, like one property that's changing in an object that results in emitting an entirely new state. So for example, um, if you've got like a like an upload progress or whatever, you might be tempted to, uh, you know, as you get progress events from your XML HTTP request, for example, you might be tempted just to set a, a property on like a, a progress property. But what the way that Ohm and Omniscient work um, and other systems like this that use kind of these immutable stores and whatnot is you call set 
progress on the the request, but that changes the entire application state or the entire component state. And so you the, the component state is kind of visualized as a stream of values instead of just you know one value that's constantly changing over time. Uh, and so it's kind of splitting apart that like the, the object that holds the state from the actual the, the, the concept of the states themselves. And so if you do that, then you can model your UI as a simple JavaScript object, basically a simple model that changes over time and you get emits discrete values. And I don't want to get like too technical here because I, I don't want to like I don't want to miss the point getting off in the weeds. But the but the the big idea is that you have just a simple callback, which is the simplest form of reactivity that you can have. Just a single callback. It's like when hey I've got my data set, I've got my XHR, I've got my complete box. Whenever something changes, give me a callback that's got the entire state. The entire, like every property about this component, give it to me. Give it to me all just with a simple callback, a single function that takes a single argument. And the power in that is that it can be integrated into any UI library. Uh, It can be integrated into Ember. It can be integrated into React, Angular, like you name it. Um, Because... There's, it doesn't rely on any other observation primitive. There's no like backbone observers or ember observers or you know node style event emitters. Like there's no you know there's no uh, there's no ceremony, no interface, and so you're kind of really distilling what a UI workflow or a UI component is down to like its purest essence, uh, which is just. You, you, you capture it in a JavaScript object. I've got these actions that I do, and that causes a new state to emit it, be emitted. You know, I, the, the, to use the, the XML HTTP request, we have a component that, that, that wraps that, that uses an immutable style, and it's like, you know, you get a progress event. A new state happens. You get a, the, the request finishes, or the request errors. You, 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 you know, that's an action, and a new state happens. Um, and you can encode all of that in in JavaScript, and then it turns out that then bringing that into a component is really really easy because the component just instantiates this little uh, JavaScript library, and then uh, listens for the new states. And every time the state happens, it injects it into the templating context, and and voila! And so now you have a component that represents this kind of stream of states that are injected into your templating context. So and I've been I've <laughs> You just you build Sorry. your whole model in POJOs, right? Yeah. And then f- for the view property, you wrap those POJOs in a component that your framework understands and can just render really easily right. and hopefully really quickly, right? If you have that immutable model over it. And so, like, what did you guys think about? Like, I mean, that is kind of like it was a little bit of a departure from the way that we had been kind of doing things, mm-hmm. where we were using Ember objects and using computed properties. And so, I'm, you know, I'm definitely curious to explore what you guys thought about, you know, kind of that departure and and you know that process of, you know, kind of experimenting with a new best practice. Yeah. So, what was it to be a junior dev and get handed? Right, some readme or some requirements that said, "Hey, this is going to be an immutable model. You're going to write it in POJOs, 
and we're going to pull it in seamlessly later. So <laughs> what, were the, what were the the issues that we had running into that? Or what did it take? <laughs> this is never going to work. <laughs> I feel like we were pretty optimistic about it from the beginning, actually. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it, yeah, I don't know. Sure. I really enjoyed working with Alex on it, um, especially kind of the process of like taking, you know, Charles, you had kind of this obvious like passion for immutability and Alex and I kind of hopped on the bandwagon from like watching your excitement about it Um, (laughs) um, when, you know, otherwise this isn't, this is like, it is a departure of how I would normally interact with Ember. Like this is the, the, the entire process here is not, is, is different from, um, you know, my own process of, of building components or thinking about pagination. I've, you know, implemented pagination a couple of different times in a couple of different ways, um, which definitely was part of why I was excited about trying to find this kind of more universal solution um, instead of sort of reinventing the wheel on this every single time. I feel like pagination is kind of one of those things that um, everybody has to end up kind of rolling their own a little bit, uh, especially when they're working with with Ember. There just kind of isn't Ugh. a canonical version yet. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm actually like really excited that we, we got this thing released cause I, I'm hoping that it saves other people a, t- a ton of time to work on it. But it was really interesting mm-hmm. to work with Alex on this because I think, you know, both of us approached the problem from kind of different perspectives and, uh, you know, Alex is very, uh, I'll definitely let him talk about it, but, uh, is sort of driven by like a TDD approach. Um, and I follow TDD yeah. because it's a useful tool for working with other people, but it's not actually naturally the way that my brain wants to figure out problems. I'm definitely a, a stand in front of a whiteboard and doodle things until I totally understand the problem. And then I'll start kind of uh, messing with the code. So I think we did a lot of kind of flipping back and forth between those things. And we were able yeah. to kind of suss out exactly what Charles was what had gotten Charles excited about this in the first place <laughs> um, um, and then see how we could, you know, implement it on a problem that we were trying to solve for, for a client in, in like a very practical way. So I don't know, Alex, what, what, what did you think about it? Especially like getting started well, working yeah, together on um, this. I, I, I think this project came at the right time because the Monday that it was presented, I had just come back from Ruby Decamp. And Ruby Decamp is a coding retreat um, out in a national forest outside of D.C. And on day one, you just TDD um, a coding problem with a group of people you've never met before. And I, I do more JavaScript than I do Ruby, but I was paired with people who had been doing Ruby for um, just under a decade really know how to TDD, right? And what they what they told me was it takes four years for you to really understand what TDD is and to really understand how to jump into a problem and te- like have test-driven development dictate how you even think about starting a problem. So I was working with these really intelligent people who knew these processes very well. And then I was presented with a completely blank slate of a problem, and um, I had to use TDD to jump into it. That was what I was really excited to do, and it came at a really opportune time. So that was really fortunate. Yeah. I think that, right, Charles, you presented us with um, just a couple of <laughs> concepts, a couple of APIs. And, uh, I have to say, this is, this is actually, yeah, I know, it's pretty awesome because I, I have to say, I I gave you a readme and like a 
a pile of undocumented JavaScript. Yeah, when I say APIs, uh, I meant <laughs> yeah. these, these were documented function calls, like inside paragraphs. That was <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and you guys took it and ran with it. I was like, <laughs> I was really. I have to be be quite honest in retrospect, or not in retrospect. At the time, I was kind of half expecting like a you know like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We like it. No, Wait a second. Behind closed doors. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> you want me to actually no? Go f yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like reference implementation or GTFO. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I kind of want to talk about like what TDDing this problem meant for me, uh, mm-hmm. and what we learned from it, which was that. Tests is a, another piece of software that has its own life that needs to be maintained and cared for, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think when I we think re- the test suite on this, you rewrote it at least three times, right? Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. When with TDD, you do these like small incremental steps, and uh, you you ping pong one another, which means you write a failing test and then hand it. I'll hand it off to Lydia. And she would fix this failing test and then write the next step, which would fail. And we would just do this over and over and over. And by the time that just a regular Pojo library was done, I think we had about 110 tests that were Yeah, I think we had like well three, three tests yeah. per line of code or something. Yeah. 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 They, were, they were well thought out and they helped us get the whole library up. But at the yeah, end of really, it, they weren't I mean, well organized. And we had to add new features, which was like, uh, where does this go? And yeah. I think the goal of TDD is if you do have to add a new feature later, like you know exactly where it goes in your in your test. Like you you document your your user flow or your model flow and you put it directly in there. And if you can't put it directly in there, it's time to rethink your test suite a little bit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think we we definitely reached that point a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's that's when it really helped to, I mean, there were a couple of times where we were sort of working through the tests and yeah, I, I, you know, we'd get a little bit, a little bit lost on what the next piece was supposed to be. And, uh, you know, we kind of were just like, okay, let's, (laughs) let's literally close the laptop for a second um, (laughs) and go stand in front of the whiteboard and see if we can like draw this as a picture because if you can't if you can't explain a problem in a diagram you're probably missing some piece of understanding about it and that happened a couple of times where you know we we got kind of invested in the in the test suite um, and we'd worked through a couple of problems and then you know, I would kind of hear that maybe Alex had a different assumption about some piece of it than I did. Um, mm-hmm. But we were having trouble kind of like finding the right words to explain our positions on it. And then as soon as we started drawing pictures of it, we were like, oh, okay, I, I understand this completely differently than you do. So let's like find some mm-hmm. consistent consensus on this piece and then we'll go back to um, the code and move on to the next piece. And that was, it was really handy. And uh, yeah, for, I typically for some reason, wanted to express. Oh, I was just gonna say uh, that, that for some reason this particular problem that we were working on like lent like lent itself pretty well to drawing pictures, um, because like with the 
with like an infinite scroll, right? And the the immutable models that we were working on were, were pages, right? So there's this like very clear concept of like, okay, I have this like set of things and then determining like what those set of things should look like at any given point in, in this, uh, based on like which, uh, like what state it was in, um, mm-hmm. actually lent itself pretty well to drawing pictures. Um, but what, what were you going to say, Alex? I think that you're the one who came up with like the the pictured model for it. I think all object-oriented programming and flow can be drawn in one way or another. But mm-hmm. very early on in the project, probably before we wrote any code, we came up with a visual system to represent it and to refer back to and to draw. That's true. And, That's true. Uh, the way I like to express the next step in code especially when I'm TDDing, is to express it in a test to say, describe this piece, it does this. And you were like, hold on, let's just draw it. (laughs) And then we wrote the test after that. And it worked amazingly. Yeah, we have to put those drawings in. Well, those drawings ended up in the the readme as well. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, I think there's, there's like, you know, there's this uh, style of programming called literate programming. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but um, it's, you know, the original formulation of literate programming is basically that you've got your your documentation, you compile your documentation into working code. So you have two compilers, one that compiles your documentation into a machine code and one that compiles your documentation into a manual that you can put on the web or, or bind into a book or whatever. Um, but I really like that idea that because I, you know, the the kind of the older I get, I feel like the only best practice in programming, like the only best practice, is literate programming. And by that I mean not literate programming as it was originally conceived, but literate programming as in communication of the intent is the foundational practice. Mm-hmm. Whether that's through diagrams, whether it's through testing, whether it's through README, whether it's through cucumber tests or whatever. It's about preloading your understanding of the problem before you attempt any solution. And I think that, you know, that, that dynamic that you guys are talking about is, you know, it's, that's like when it's at its best, like literacy through diagramming, literacy through testing, literacy through, you know, documentation, um, public documentation. Um, so how do we get but, uh, a documentation compiler for UI <laughs> elements on the front end? A documentation compiler. I mean, you kind of have it already. It's Markdown, right? Yeah. Sounds like GitHub pages <laughs> to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, all I right, mean, right. what, yeah. what we ended up doing for that piece was we we built a visualization, right? Like we actually, I, right. I think those those doodles actually ended up like deeply informing this demo that we built um, to give people, I mean, when you're talking about flow of data, it's sort of hard to help other people understand what's happening under the covers mm-hmm. without building a visualization of it. And that's like exactly right. what you've we got ended this up invis- doing. A totally invisible process. How do you shine light on it? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think building that visualization was deeply fascinating and helping me like un- understand <laughs> exactly what was happening with like using immutability for this purpose um, because you know it, it the implementation on the front end actually ended up being fairly straightforward because it's literally just an array 
of objects and I can, you know, use certain properties of those objects as as classes um, to very quickly show, okay, this is a pending page, this is a um, resolved page, this is a rejected page. Um, and so there, there wasn't a whole lot of, like, complex templating that had to happen to, to make this visualization thing work. It just relied on exactly the state of the data to right to easily convey it to to a user um even though you know the actual visible portion of the scroll like you know we have a window that you're scrolling through and there's there's some visual bounds to that but the interesting thing that's happening there is actually all the stuff you can't see in the visual window part um it's all the unloading and loading of new records uh that's kind of outside of this of of your little scroll window or whatever um but because we had the in, we had a representation of the entire data set even without having all of the records loaded that we were able to show the broader context of what was happening at any given point in time because we had we had you know a page even if that page was an unrequested page that didn't have any loaded records um that was always yeah, the, that was the always the whole present. thing's there yeah the whole visualization is there in the model always right Right, like there's never anything that's not like anything that was on the screen is never not there. Right, and then it was just a matter of like, okay, so once this once this page hits a certain, um, or, or once we've scrolled to a certain point in this data set, we're going to fetch new records, and then those records are going to like update this specific page um, that's going to get replaced with a with a resolved page or whatever. All of that was very easy to show. <laughs> Um, because mm-hmm. it wasn't us having to recalculate anything there. It was just, okay, well, we have this placeholder here because our entire array is already present. Mm-hmm. And then we would just swap out the one that got updated. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually curious if you guys, so like we've been this, this, this kind of this interplay between kind of the, the kind of the, the hidden model and like the, the representation and how like as you guys were TDDing it, you had a... Uh, a visual representation that kind of a la- like a language of like a visual language that you're using on the whiteboards and on you know paper uh, to describe you know the the individual parts of this data set and I wonder if do you feel like that was more that was easier with an immutable style because there was because really every state does correspond to really a still image as it might appear on the whiteboard like you know something something happens you know you can, and then you can draw out a new state but like you actually mm. do have these kind of drawings so to to speak in memory mm-hmm. do you feel like there that was there was any interplay with the design process there i'm just curious i mean i feel yeah, for me like it was easier to rationalize about this because because of using the immutability style like what we were actually working with, the the entirety of what we were working with, was what would happen if you weren't using pagination at all, right? Like, if you were just fetching all the records at once, you would handle it in a certain way um, that's, like, pretty easy to conceptualize, like, what you want to do with it. Um, And by having these sort of placeholders for things that will be loaded at some point in the future, um, 
it was a lot easier for me to think about like, okay, we still have this context of like the entire data set. We always have this context of the entire data set. It's just whether or not we've actually explicitly fetched some portion of it from the server. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) No, no, it does. It does. It does. It, It definitely makes sense. It's, it's, you know, you're just, you're decoupling the, the actual change the process of change from the effects of the change. In other words, the effects of the change are the immutable part, and the process of the change—that's kind of your; those are your actions and your, you know, your 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 imperative portion, where you, you know something happens, a page resolves. You need to decide what happens, but then once you decide what happens, then that's just how it is, you know, and until something something else happens. But like because you can kind of—I don't know—I'm. I'm just kind of introspecting a little bit in how it's affected my thought processes. And it really, like, I think, you know, the fact that you can decouple that, the, the, the actual process of the transition from the result of the transition. And you're like, this is the result. This is the result of the transition. Uh, and I'm just going to compartmentalize, like, it's, it's its own object. It's its own self. And then I'm going to, you know... It's that's that's immutable. It's not going to change. That's the effect. Uh, but then I'm going to package the actual thing that does the transitioning elsewhere, and and you know they're not going to be the same object uh, in there. I, but, I think uh, that but, it didn't change the flow that we like wrote tests in. I think our tests would have looked very very similar whether we did a mutable mm-hmm. or an immutable style, but it worked so well with asynchronicity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that, definitely. Yeah, that it was it was so much easier to test this. Yeah, these immutable objects where y- you would do whatever you needed to do to fire off some asynchronous request, right? And then you have the state of this object, and it's just going to stay there. And you can do all of these tests on it: is this pending? Is it in flight? Which records have come back, and which ones haven't? And we happen to do it in with promises, and you could resolve promises uh, step by step and see what came back. And it was just very easy and surprisingly intuitive for a programming concept that I didn't have much experience with. And it also let us do things, particularly from the testing perspective, where we could kind of see like, okay, this was the initial state of this thing, and then we did some stuff. Is it different in this next state? Right. Um, right. Because yeah. and and like that's something that is kind of a problem in asynchronous testing because you don't have you don't have whatever the first thing was any like <laughs> uh, yeah you don't have like <laughs> what, a point what you of had comparison. was gone right yeah um, and like for like that's what seems really interesting to me about immutability also like we didn't necessarily take advantage of it for this project but you know you can kind of conceptually think oh hey I have this like stream of states which means I could um, you know have an undo tree or I could like rewind some steps or I could replace some steps so like if you I mean I'm thinking about yeah we were spitballing about it yeah yeah I I mean you know I had a use case on a previous project where users would encounter a problem, like they would produce an error, but because, you know, users aren't aren't the technical people, they they couldn't convey to you what they were doing that triggered that problem. And so trying to troubleshoot user feedback was very difficult. But if you have an immutable setup where you're actually like keeping a log of all of the states in the order in which they changed, 
Like you could potentially collect that log and then replay exactly what the user was doing to produce some kind of problem or whatever. And you know there are tons of different applications for why you might want to do something like that. And it's just, I don't that that part kind of got me really excited about the prospect of using this as kind of yeah. a regular pattern. You could find out what socks they're likely to wear by data mining how they use the their credit card input. <laughs> <laughs> this is a new, whole new area of exploration for big data. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you know, but so before so so we're uh, before we close off though, there definitely it was not all fun and games, right? Uh, there were some there were there were some challenges, uh, some you know some both conceptual hills to climb and some just some kind of some code blocks to to surmount, and so it wouldn't be fair to paint this really rosy picture uh, without kind of talking about a few of the drawbacks that we ran into. I mean, obviously, we think the trade-off's worth it, but... Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the kind of roadblocks that we hit surfaced when we started to try to integrate just kind of the raw JavaScript library in with Ember because we discovered that Ember was sort of opinionated about some things that we didn't necessarily know going into it that it was uh, opinionated about. <laughs> so I don't know. Alex <laughs> is definitely the one that ran into several of those. I ran into a couple when I was working on the on the the demo portion of it. Uh, but maybe Alex, do you want to talk about like the like the yeah, interface this, situation? This is very. I feel like this is very use case specific for impagination and not so much immutability, but. For impagination, we yielded an object and we said, template or component, treat this as an array. I know it's an object, but treat it as an array object, and it wasn't. So we extended the object as an array, but because Ember data or, or M, was it Ember data or Ember object? It's really just Ember the, the Ember object model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Ember object model or like Ember array model has so many different functions uh, that it typically uses than array. So we kind of have to, or if we really wanted to make a perfect immutable object that's we want it to be treated as an array, we would have to extend all the array functions onto this object for both Ember array and JavaScript array. So we just happen to do object at and slice and length. Those are the only functions that we extended. And it happened to work with the libraries and components that we wanted this to interact with inside of our demo. Um, but that was really difficult. <laughs> yeah, well, and it was yeah. it was complex to troubleshoot because we were like, why why doesn't this just work? And it was definitely one of those, you know, JavaScript situations where you're like, oh man, these error messages, <laughs> these error messages are completely useless to me. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, something's wrong. Cool. Yeah, I gathered that. Um, could you like point to where that might have happened? I don't know. Um Which one are you which one are you thinking of in particular? Um, I think I think like originally when we started working with this as though it should be handled like um, an Ember array, 
uh, the mm-hmm. like not having a length property definitely like messed up everything. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and then <laughs> we did like throw it into a tailspin. Yeah. Uh, um, so you know there were, there are yeah. a couple of situations where I was like working on the demo part, and it literally crashed my entire browser <laughs> when I yeah. tried to like load the <laughs> template because I'm you know using an each helper on something that it it doesn't understand but it's attempting to read it as an array so it's not giving me like a oh this needs to be an array yeah. it's just it's just freaking out um, yeah and then the other thing that we ran into was like in a pure immutable style we would want to be able to like actually freeze the object so that like you could not update it um, and that ended up causing some very interesting problems in, Ender, in Ember because Ember wants to attach all this metadata to objects um, and so it it couldn't because <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> we said no you, you can't do that we're going to freeze this object so we ended up having to like roll that back ultimately um, and that was another situation where it was like really comp like it was very complex to try and troubleshoot that one because I the, the yeah, feedback sudden, I was getting, yeah, worked. it was just, oh, this doesn't work, and that, there's no feedback on why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think there's, yeah, there was definitely a lot of a lot of ceremony around those those array interfaces, the 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 object freezing. I think another one too is that, you know, that we've we ran up a some a, a cup ran up against a couple of times is there's kind of the implicit assumption, not a hard assumption, but you you run into problems when you're just using POJOs uh, inside your Ember templates because Ember's going to attach its own getters and setters and it's going to define its own properties uh, on on these objects. And I think we ran into that a couple times where we were – we were using an object that had been put into a templating context and then we tried to set a property on it later and – uh, or something, something was going to happen, and it was you know saying, "Hey, you need to use the set method for that, mm-hmm. or you, you need oh, to use yeah. the get method for that." So, and and yeah, that was very, it was very strange that it was, and it, it felt kind of, I don't know, it felt kind of like uh, intrusive. Like mm-hmm. I felt a little bit violated that Ember was trying to like attach these setters on my plain old Java objects that they were, you know, that were ostensibly going to be immutable. Uh, and we never really had a workaround for that. We were just like, okay, I guess we're not yeah. going to do that. You just have to kind of live with it. Yeah. But and but you know, so in development mode, you turn you know in the development standalone JavaScript mode, uh, we turn the the strict immutability, the strict freezing on. So if there are any bugs uh, that arise because you're accidentally changing, you know, one of the prior states, you know, you get an exception. Uh, but then, when you deploy it and you're in production, you can set a flag that's like, "Hey, uh, you know, we're not actually gonna, we're not gonna actually freeze these things inside of an Ember application." But yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, I think I think that's about it. Does uh, do you guys have any any closing words of wisdom? Yeah, yeah, I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, really this, the whole takeaway from, from this entire Ember impagination or just impagination project is the power of stopping and drawing or just stopping in general. (laughs) Stopping at 5 PM would have been a good idea most days, but (laughs) it ran a little longer very frequently just because it's so easy to TDD one extra step forward. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, the gamification of TDD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's. I yeah. think. I think. I mean, Alex and I even had like 
we like went out to lunch one day and we like mapped out <laughs> all of the things that we learned from from you know we paired on this for days and days and days for like the entire day um and I love pairing uh but there should definitely be a time limit to it because it's exhausting and uh, your brain sort of I, I think stops we set our limit. working that well yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we set four, our limit hours, at four hours, right? Like nothing, nothing more than yeah. that. Yeah, and then we immediately broke it a couple of times, but at least then we That's knew <laughs> that it was okay to stop and go work on things yeah. separately, or um, you know, go work on something else for a while. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It was definitely a, it, it was a fascinating learning experience for me, and I learned a ton like working collaboratively on this project instead of you know trying to muddle through it myself. Uh, and I think that, you know, this was definitely a situation where three heads was was better than one. And I'm pretty proud of what came out of it. Yeah, man, me too. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.